השיעור מספר 187 מפי הרב גד דישי, ספר במדבר, Let's get this straight. Welcome, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Gad Dishi and we're going to be discussing today Sefer B'Midbar, Let's Get This Straight. Uh, before we begin, I just want to have everyone please set some type of a reminder so that when you leave this room, you'll remember to turn your phones back on. You wouldn't want to forget to turn them back on after you uh, left. Um, if anyone has any questions or comments, please save them for uh, email correspondence or after the entire lecture. We have a lot of ground to cover. Unfortunately, we probably won't have any time for questions today. Uh, and before we get started, we're going to start with a little bit of a roadmap as to where the shiur is going to go. And we're referring back to this slide a number of times. Uh, we have two parts to the shiur. The first part is a little bit shorter than the second. Uh, the first part we're going to deal with is the book of Sefer ben Midbar in chronological order. Where is it out of order? And what does this represent? What do we learn from all of that? And then we're going to move over to the second part of the shiur. And we're going to analyze whether there's a logical order to the sequence of the narratives in Sefer B'Midbar. We'll conduct a structural analysis. We'll break it down into parts in Sefer B'Midbar and see what that can teach us. We're going to learn the power of speech, looking at the root Dalet Betresh for Dibur, for speech. We'll analyze some parallels and contents and linguistics between the various parts of Sefer B'Midbar. And again, come to the idea of what does this all mean for us? What does this represent? So we begin our shiur, we're going to ask the first question, is the book in chronological order? Well, when we talk about narrative chronology, we like hearing stories in order. Right, if we try to think of a fable that we remember from our earlier years, if we uh, heard things out of sequence, we really wouldn't understand what was going on in the story. So for example, someone's been sitting in my chair, said the mama bear, followed by... Goldilocks ran down the stairs, opened the door, and ran away into the forest, only to then afterwards be reading, once upon a time, there was a little girl named Goldilocks. Well, obviously, this disjointed presentation would leave us a little bit confused as to what was going on in the story. Well, what's going on in Sefer B'Midbah? Well, let's start from the very beginning, a very good place to start. Perek Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. This is the command of God to Moshe to conduct the census of the Jewish people. And here it says, When does he do this speech? The first day of the second month, what we would call Rosh Chodesh Iyar. So we're in the second year of the Jews in the desert, right? The first year the Jews got out of Egypt, they crossed the Yamsuf, they got the Torah at Har Sinai, they did Cheta Egel, they got the command to build the Mishkan, they built the whole Mishkan, that's the whole first year. Second year comes around, and now Rosh Chodesh Iyar, God commands Moshe to conduct the census. So it looks like this is the beginning, or is it? Because if we look in Perak Tet, Pasuk Aleph of Sefer Ben-Midbar, we have another opener that dates the speech of God to Moshe, and there it says that he spoke to him the Bachodesh Harishon Lemor, which means that he took place sometime during the month of Nisan. Well, clearly, this looks like it's the very beginning, because the first month, Nisan, comes before the second month of Iyar. So Perak Tet should have been the opener for Sefer Ben-Midbar. Well, we have this head-on collision between Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, and Perek Tet, Pasuk Aleph, and we have to decide how we're going to reconcile this contradiction. Well, one major point to pay attention to is that these are the only two places in the entire Torah where God gives us the exact date when he's speaking to Moshe. We have our standard opener by the Ben Adonai and Moshe Lemor. There are other places where we can infer when things are taking place, but as an opening sentence, these are the only two, and it's as if God is shining a spotlight on these two places to tell us we have to pay attention to the chronology here and understand that these things are out of order. Well, based on this contradiction, the Begemaran Psachim comes to the conclusion and asks, if so, let the Torah first write that which occurred in the first month, and then let it write that which occurred in the second month. And why doesn't the Torah just put it in order? Write what happened first, first, and then write what happened second, afterwards. Said in the name of Rav, that is to say, there is no earlier and later in the Torah. That is, there is no absolute chronological order, and events can appear out of temporal sequence. So this rule is what we have all grown to know as En Mukdam Umuchar Batorah. 
there's no need to seek out the Torah to be in chronological order. However, I think we all intuit that in general, uh, we do find the Torah to be in chronological order. The idea of en mugdamu mukhar Torah really isn't the general rule, it's the exception to the rule. Right? First, when there's nothing, we have then the creation of the world. We go through the forefathers, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Then we get to Moshe, we get to them uh, being slaves in Egypt. They leave Egypt, they're going through the desert, they're on their way to Eretz Yisrael. So themes, things seem to be in chronological order. So therefore, Sefer Midbar being out of chronological order is really an exception to the rule. And as the Sforno tells us, when we run into such an exception, it's our job to understand that this is when there is a certain purpose, aside from the chronology, in the order of the narrative. So as Rabbi Yudha Trapper says, it may not be in chronological order, but it certainly is in a logical order. So it's our job to find out what it is that that logical order is going to be. But before we get there, let's first see what kind of solutions we may be able to run across. So here Rashi is giving us a local solution to this problem in chronology. And he says the reason why we didn't start with Perak Tet Pasuk Aleph as the opener to Sefer Bemidbar is because it implies something disparaging to Israel. That during all the 40 years they were in the wilderness, they offered only this single Passover sacrifice. Right, so Perak Tet describes how the Jewish people brought the Korban Pesach in the second year of the, their stay in the desert. But, Rashi explains, that if we were to start with that pasuk, we'd all be reminded instantly that the rest of the time the Jews were in the desert, they failed to bring Korban Pesach, and that would be something disparaging to Israel. So instead of opening the book with it, we're going to bury it someplace in Perak Tet. And this is the reason why we open with the Mifkad, which starts on Rosh Chodesh Iyar, where the Jews are behaving more properly and obeying God's command. So there are local solutions. As we go through our presentation, you'll see many types of contradictions. There are local solutions almost in every single one of them that we'll see why we need to get to a global solution soon. So we looked at the general census and the Pesach. This is the order that's presented to us in the text. And we see that if really we wanted to align them chronologically, what we needed to do was switch them. We need to have the Pesach before the general census. So once we've done that, we're done, right? That's all we need to do. Well, not really. As we said in our map of our uh, shiur, we have to also see where else is this book out of order. Well, if we take a look at the first ten prakim of Sefer Bemidbar, we have a number of general topics. Uh, the first is the general census. Then we have the appointment of the Leviim, the Levites. We have the inauguration of the altar, the inauguration of the Mishkan in general, the purification of the Levites of the Leviim, and then our command to do Korban Pesach, which is followed up by the people asking about Pesach Shani. And finally, the cloud, which is something that uh, envelops the Mishkan and travels with the Jewish people. So let's take a look again. We focused on the Pesach. We realized that that wasn't in its place. It really needed to be moved up. So we're going to move that up now to the top of the chart. And so there the Pesach is on top. Now let's take about, uh, what, think about that for a minute. If we're going to have a Korban Pesach, uh, we're going to need to look at these other elements. If you're going to bring a Korban Pesach, you want to have it be brought in the Mishkan. If you're going to bring it in the Mishkan, you're going to have to have an altar. Well, if you can have an altar functioning and the Mishkan functioning, you're going to need to have Levites functioning. You're going to have the Levi'im doing their job. And if you need the Levi'im doing their job, it means they were already appointed and they were already purified before they enter their job in the Mishkan. So all these elements had to have happened before Korban Pesach. So these three elements also need to get moved. And we're going to move them up to the top of the chart. First, we're going to appoint our Levites. We're going to then purify them. And once they're purified, they can go ahead and work on the altar inauguration. And then we can bring a Korban Pesach. So things seem to have now put, be, be put back in order, except that we didn't pay attention to the cloud. The cloud is something that we read about in Sefer B'midbar Perek Tet, where it says, Ubiyom hakim et ha-mishkan, et ha-mishkan le-ohel ha-edut. It was on the day that they erected the Mishkan that the Anan enveloped the uh, Mishkan. And similarly in Pasuk Yud Zayin, we see that this is indeed the Anan, the same cloud that traveled along with the Jewish people when they traveled and when they encamped. And this event seems to have been taking place on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. If we look at Parashat Pekudeh, Sefer Shemot Perek Mem, God commands Moshe, on the first day of the first month, you will erect the Mishkan. And in Pasuk Yud Zayin, God indeed attests that Moshe did this, because it says, 
בשנה השנית, באחד לחודש, הוא קם המשכן. So the Mishkan is a first day of the first month event, and as such, the cloud, which was at the bottom of the chart, needed to have happened before, or on, was on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and so this too needs to get moved up. I put it here after the altar inauguration, because that's exactly when the Shekhinah begins to rest in the Mishkan, and that's when the cloud is enveloping the Mishkan, so it's after the altar inauguration and before the Pesach. So we've jumbled a lot of the first uh, ten prakim. Things are a lot of out of order. But before we move on, let's just take one look at the general census. Now in the general census itself, there seems to be things that are out of order as well. So we read about the command to conduct the general census, and God commands Moshe to count all of the Jewish people, all the males from 20 years and up. Right? Kol zachar and indeed, in Pasuk Yudchet and uh, Yutet, we see that Moshe does this. He assembled all of the congregation. And in Pasuk Mem Vav, after they list out all the Shvatim, how much everybody had, it says, We have an entire census. We've conducted what we needed to do. All of them put in together, 603,550. Mission accomplished. However, if we just take a look at Pasuk Mem Zayin, the next one, surprise, Vehalviim lematavotam, we're not going to count. We didn't count the Leviim. Who told Moshe not to count the Leviim? It said count everybody from 20 years and up. So who gave Moshe the right to leave the Leviim out? Well, if we have a little bit of patience and you have uh, the text in front of you, you would be able to see that in Pasuk, Memchet and Memtet, it was God who told him, Well, wait a second. We were expecting to have a chronological order. It should have been, count all the males aged 20 and above, but don't count the Levites, and then report to us that the Levites were not counted. Instead, what we get is a confused textual order where it says, count all the males 20 and up. Oh yeah, the Levites were not counted. And then tell us, oh yeah, why were they not counted? Because oh, there was a command that God told Moshe earlier not to count the Levites. So obviously this command not to count the Levites needed to have been given to Moshe before the census began and not after it was completed. So this element as well is out of place. Let's take a look at the summary of where we are now for the first 10 prakim so people can get oriented. We have the appointment of the Levi'im and the Levite purification that needs to take place before we can inaugurate the Mishkan and the, and the Mizbeach and that needs to take place before, probably before, possibly the latest on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. The Hanukkah Mishkan is on the 1st of Nisan, the same as the day that the cloud envelops it. And then we bring the Korban Pesach on the 14th of Nisan, and only after all of that do we get to the general census on the 1st of Iyah. So, enough is enough. You can see and compare how we started and how we ended. The final order of Prakim chronologically is Gimel Dalid, Chet Zayin, the second half of Tet, then the first half of Perek Tet, and only afterwards, Perek Aleph. Well, this is quite confusing, and we'll have to understand why this is the case. But is this the, are these the only places where the book is out of chronological order? It is not. If we look in Perek Yud, Pasuk Lamed Hay and Lamed Vav, we have these interesting little marks. They're upside-down nuns, these anti-sigmas. They may have started out as squiggle marks, but we have upside-down nuns. They appear in your Chumash, and they also appear in the Sefer Torah that we read today. They're there. These upside-down nuns, they're the only ones in the entire Torah. And it's the, uh, it seems to be interesting why they're there. The Gemara explains why they're there. And in Masechet Shabbat tells us that the Holy One, blessed be He, made signs in the Torah for this portion before and after to say that this is not its place. And Rashi explains these psukim of Vahib and Samaharon, when the ark traveled, really belong somewhere in Perek Bet. Well, okay, so these psukim aren't where they belong. Let's move on to Perek Tetvav. We read another episode there of the woodchopper or the wood gatherer, the Mekoshesh Etzim. Vayubin Israel Bamidbah. They were in the desert. He did something which was forbidden, whether he was chopping wood or gathering wood. And on this episode, the Rashi and Ramban have a machloket as to when this took place. Right? It just said the Jews were in the desert. It's no, there's no indication about time. Could have been any time they were in the desert. Rashi pins this down. And he says, no, this happened right after the first time they heard about the Mitzvah of Shabbat. Rashi says, the verse speaks in disparagement of Israel, for they did not observe but for the first Shabbat. And on the second, this person came along and violated it. 
So whether we got the Mizvav Shavar at Mara or we got it in the Aseret Debrot at Matan Torah, this is a year one event. This is something that took place when we first got the Mizvav Shabbat. We all kept the first Shabbat. That was good. But then the second one came along, and this fellow ruined it for everybody by violating Shabbat. But it's a year one event. The Ramban says, no, 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 everything's in perfect order. This is where it belongs. We just had the spy episode before this parak, and now this was at this very moment after the act of the spies. Thus the text states, in the desert. For it's while the people were delayed there by the decree that this occurred. So according to the Ramban, it's in order, but according to Rashi, this episode does not belong here. Moving on to the rebellion of Korach, this is the clash of the titans of the Ibn Ezra versus the Ramban. If people look and read it inside, it's well thought out arguments on both sides. Uh, the Ibn Ezra says that this entire episode of the Korach rebellion occurs when the Levites replace the firstborn, which is right after Matan Torah, right? Sometime in Tammuz, when Moshe comes down, he sees Cheta Egel, they decide, that's it, we're going to replace the firstborn with the Levites. They're the ones who are going to be able to be loyal to God. And the Ibn Ezra says right there on the spot, the first one go, what? what do you mean you're replacing us? We're not ready to step down. The rebellion begins. According to the Ramban, this episode happens only after the episode of the spies. It's only at this point where people doubt Moshe's leadership and therefore suddenly we have all these old voices coming up and telling us that there's going to be a rebellion. So according to the Ramban, again, this is in place, but according to the Ibn Ezra, it is not. And if that's not in place, the aftermath of the Korach Rebellion, Perakim Yud Zayin and Yud Chet, that speak about the blooming of Aharon's staff, that shows about the chosenness of Shevet Levi, the idea of Matnot Kehuna and the Leviim not getting a portion in the land of Israel, all of that is the aftermath of the Korach Rebellion. And all these would then, according to the Ibn Ezra, have taken place sometime in the first year. Well, if it happens in the first year, it's even before the entirety of the first ten Perakim, right? The whole ten Perakim we saw were basically Rosh Chodesh Nisan events, and this is happening even before that. Moving on, we see the parasha para aduma, perek yutet. We're introduced there to the idea of the mechatat. What are the waters of purification? And there we understand that this is the mixing of the ashes of the burnt para aduma, uh, along with the water from the ma'im chayim in the kli. And the pasuk tells us these are going to be behaitala adat bnei yisrael mishmeret lemenida chatati. This is the definition, the first time we've ever heard of the Mechatat, and this is the first time we're reading about what we do with Para Aduma. Well, when we take a look at the Reggio, the Reggio is an Italian uh, Torah scholar. Uh, he lived in the 1800s in Italy. Uh, he mastered several languages. He was a phenomenal fellow. He was a master in math. Uh, and thanks to our friend Joey Harari, we have access to his uh, commentary on the Torah. And he says there's no doubt that this is not in its place. For above, by the purification of the Levites, it is written in Perekhet, right? that thing that took place before or on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, sprinkle upon them the water of purification, Mechatat. And so it was done to them. Well, if we purify the Levites before they began their service in the Mishkan, uh, with the Mechatat, so they have had to have already done the entire ceremony of Paraduma. And we also had to already know what Mechatat was. So obviously this entire Perek, it doesn't belong here as well. Well, on this one we have some local solutions. The Dat Mikran says that it's true, it is not where it belongs, but there's a thematic idea that it's placed here because this is going to be a prelude, an introduction to the wars that the Jewish people are going to have with Midian, Sichon, and Og. They're going to be introduced to a lot of Tum'av, the dead bodies during the battle, and therefore they need to have this here. This is somewhat of a, uh, a prelude to what's happening. And Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Samet tells us that this is really a hint that the first generation is dying out and the people are busy burying the dead for the 38 years that they're sojourning through the desert. Because we take a look, the first prakim until here are dealing with the first generation and after this from Perik Chaf and on, we're really going to be dealing with year 40. So this is what the Jewish people are busy with during their years in the desert. So again, they all agree that this prak is not in place. They're just giving us literary solutions to why it is where it is. And like I said, there are other, for all these other ones that we brought, there are local solutions, but I think we're going to need to have a global solution in a moment. Finally, Dr. Avraham Shama points out in Perek Kafchet, we have the idea of bringing Korban Tamid. And there it tells us, okay, we're being introduced now in year 40 about what it is we need to do every day uh, for sacrifices. Well, Dr. Avraham Shama points out, we even have a textual uh, proof that they've already been bringing uh, Korban Tamid since the end of year one. Right? In Perek Tet it says, 
Right? These are the preparations uh, before the inauguration of the Mishkan. They were already talking about the Jewish people bringing a korban tamid. And if that's the case, so then it must be that the command for bringing a fer- the sacrifice, the daily sacrifice, needed to have taken place somewhere in year one. So clearly that's also out of place. So to summarize, aside from the first uh, ten prakim, we have the upside-down nuns, the idea of the mekoshesh, the Korach rebellion, the mechatat, and the daily sacrifices. It's as if we were presented with a what beautiful vase of Sefer Bemidbar that was shattered into pieces. And we would have expected God in His great wisdom to put it back and make it look like this perfect vase once again, but instead, purposefully, we seem to have been given a jumbled vase that doesn't look very comprehensible as a vase, but this is what we're trying to understand. So if we go back to our roadmap in our Shi'ur, we now understand that the idea of things being out of order in Sefer Bemidbar is quite pervasive. And we're going to need to try to come up with a global solution for global problems. So what is this that is going to be is representing to us by having the entire book be out of order? So I think that the idea is that the non-chronology is the message. What does that mean? When we're being presented with a story, uh, we have a certain expectation, as we said earlier, that things would go in chronological order. But what happens when we have a break in the timeline is that as we're expecting to go forward, we suddenly get something from a past that's stumbling, uh, making us stumble along the way. We're not able to progress in the narrative as we would like. We have to take a flashback some reason and then go forward again. And that's exactly what's really happening with the Jewish people. We would like to think that the Jewish people would be successful to leave Egypt and get to Eretz Israel in a straight line. However, what really happens is the Jewish people begin their journey, but then it's the specters of their past, the idea of their slave mentality, the idea that they'd like to stick to something familiar, constantly looking to go back to Egypt, the fear of the unknown, the spy episode instilling fear to the people. As they try to move forward, it's always two steps forward, one step back. The Jewish people are not able to get to their destination in an easy way, and it's because the specters of their past are haunting them. And so a break in the timeline creates a break in the progress of the narrative. And with it, it's a break of our national mission. So this is a message of why the entire book of Sefer Bemidbar is out of order. But in addition to that, we think we have to spend a moment on thinking about how we form timelines to begin with. Well, when we think about time, we think, oh yeah, we know what time it is. Now it's whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, I woke up. So what, what, what is it that time is exactly, though, is really an abstract term. Let's take a look at what was read in the end of Parashat Noah. After Noah gives his korbanot, God assures him the laws of nature are reinstated. Od ko aretz, zera vekatsir vekor vachom vekayitz vachoref yom valayla lo yishbotu. We're going to have the seasons, agricultural seasons, the winter, the summer, the day and the night. Everything is going to continue uh, with the laws of nature. And if we think about it, this is really how people were able to, so to speak, tell time. They would associate it with some physical activity, with the harvest or with the uh, sowing. Uh, they would also try to incorporate all of their senses, aside from activity, the heat, the cold. It's something you can feel. When those things happen, you realize, oh, now I'm now in the summertime, it's hot. Oh, it's cold, now it's winter. Day and night, we can visually see the, the light and the darkness of the day and the night. As time goes on, people get a little bit more sophisticated. We try to incorporate things through the sundial. We can also visually see as it's moving across the day, the shade shifting. Finally, we can have our second hand sweep across the face of the clock. We like to hear the tick-tock. We understand that time is passing. But no matter what it is, even if we get to the nth degree, all of these things are not time. This is not what time is. This is just how we measure time. But what is time itself? When we're trying to figure out how we think about a timeline in a narrative, as we think about what happens when in a story, we use our human memory. And our human memory works by association. Right? We think about what happened at a certain time. We say, oh yeah, that was the honeymoon. That happened before our firstborn was born, we hope. And, (laughs) And association is how we're able to map out where things happened. And so, in addition to our association, we like to make use of location and landmarks. 
So location, like for example, if you ate breakfast every day at the t- same table, day in and day out, you would be, have a hard time to remember if you had cornflakes or Cheerios any particular day. But if one day you ate breakfast in the shop, and one day in the dining room, one day in your friend's house, and one day in the uh, Yun, so then you'd be able to, under- to remember better where you ate what. Similarly, landmarks. So bef- in the days before Waze, we would be able to tell people directions of where they need to go by, uh, you know, the gas station is here, take a left, you know, there's a rock that looks like a bear, or there's a bear that looks like a rock. And so then you'd be able to know where, where you needed to turn. But the Jewish people in the desert, they don't have these things. They're in the desert. There's this sense of a sand here, sand there. Even if they're moving around within the desert, there's some sense of it's not Eretz Yisrael. It's like the Mekoshesh. It happened in the desert. There's no real way to identify when it happened. It's just a big blob all in the desert. And so the Jewish people are missing also the location markers and also the landmark markers that don't allow them to remember things in clear, associative fashion. And in addition to that, we also have trauma. Trauma damages memory. William Friedman and others in the field have already proven that a psychological trauma can cause physiological damage to your neural pathways. It might be a uh, self-defense response in order to shut out that traumatic memory. But trauma damages memory. And the Jewish people, while we have many Midrashim describing the Pollyannic journeys of the Jewish people in the desert, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't really present it that way. Uh, when he describes it in Perekhet of Devarim, he says, <laughs> And he afflicted you and he made you hungry. <laughs> he made you walk through that great and terrifying desert. Nachash saraf ve'akraf, snakes, vipers, and scorpions, oh my. Vetzimaon, asher emaim, and thirst that you cannot quench. And in addition to that description, we already know there were many cases of fire. Fire came out and killed Nadav and Avihu. Fire came out and killed the Mitonenim. Fire came out and killed the 250 people of Adat Korach. We had plagues that beset the Jewish people. The plagues of the Jewish people after Chet Ha'egel. The plague that killed the Miraglim themselves. 14,700 people dying in a plague after the rebellion of Korach. 24,000 people dying in a plague after the Chet of Baal Peor. We also have natural disasters. The earthquake opening up and swallowing up all of Korach and his people. We have the vipers coming and biting people and killing them uh, without, without uh, discrimination. We have the idea of people dying by the sword, whether it's even the sword of their own kinsmen. Right? The Bnei Levi, during Chet Egel killed 3,000 people. We have the people of the Ma'apilim, that elite SWAT team that was so interested in going to the land of Israel despite the decree, but they are utterly and completely destroyed by the Amalekhi and the Kena'ani. We have divine wrath, which God is ready to replace the entirety of the Jewish people, both after Chet Egel and Chet Meraglim. We have God's wrath ignited by the Kivrot HaTa'ava, where people were asking for the meat that they weren't asked, supposed to be asking for, and also by the Korach rebellion, God is telling Moshe, step aside and let me destroy all of this congregation. The Jewish people, as a result, live their lives with a fear of death. The Jewish people, when the earthquake swallows up, they're not identifying it as a punishment for the people of Korach. They rather say, they all run away, Ki amru maybe the earth will swallow us up as well. And after the plague that beset the Jewish people, after the Korach rebellion, they say, Hen gavanu avadnu, kulanu avadnu. We are all utterly and completely doomed. Ha'im tamnu ligvoa, have we ceased to perish? This is the experience of the Jewish people in the desert. The snakes, vipers, and scorpions, fire, plagues, natural disasters, sword, divine wrath, fear of death, all of that are traumatic events that are our crushing of the vase. That's the, these are the events that cause us to break the chronological order of Sefer B'midbar. And when we look at Sefer B'midbar, this is a representation of our national collective memory. This is what we can remember as a people of what our journeys in the desert were. It's not going to be in chronological order. We cannot have associations. We don't have landmarks. We don't have any memory markers. And we have so many traumatic events that the entirety of Sefer B'midbar is now out of order. Well, maybe we think we reached the promised land, but unfortunately we did not. We're up to part two of the Shi'ur. So now we understand that there is no chronological order, but as we said, there certainly is a logical order. What is the logical order of Sefer Ben-Midbar's organization. Well, again, the Sforno is telling us it's something that we have to do. 
it's only that reason that we break away from chronology. So let's go over to a structural analysis of Sefer Bemidbar, Mivneh. We're going to look at a, a, a structural analysis of the, of the book. Well, the hardest part of a structural analysis is trying to figure out where to break up the book, where to break up the sections, so we can know what to analyze. We want to have different parts. We want to look at a structure. We need to figure out all the parts. If people remember back from the toolbox years when we gave lectures earlier about the methodology of how to do a structural analysis. So here we're lucky. If we're going to do the whole book, at least we know the first part, Perak Aleph, and we know the last part, Perak Lamed Vav. So we have two points already, the beginning and the end. That's pretty good. So now we have to figure out the stuff in the middle. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was something singular, like only once in the entire Torah, um, that would stand out, some type of Masoretic spotlight that would tell us where to break the first section. Well, where are we going to find something like that? Oh yeah, these upside-down nuns. They're the only ones in the Torah. And if we read what the Gemara tells us about these upside-down nuns in Masechet Shabbat, Rav Shmuel bar Nachman said that Rav Yonatan said with regard to the verse, Chatzva Amudeh HaShiva, she carved its seven pillars in Sefer Mishleh. These are the seven books of the Torah. Well, we're used to five books. Where are the seven? Well, Bereshit is one. Shemot is two. Vayikra is three. Sefer Bemidbar, from the beginning until that first upside-down nun, that's book number four. The two psukim in between the two upside-down nuns, that's book number five. After the upside-down nun until the end of Sefer Bemidbar is book number six, and Sefer Devarim is book number seven. Seven books. But we realize, at least from here, that the Gemara understands the idea of the upside-down nun as a demarcation point. It's a place to break when we're making our analysis. So, if we're trying to figure out where we're going to go, at least we have one break, Perak Yud Aleph, as a break. Now, wouldn't it be even better if we were able to find some other Masoretic text uh, indicator, something that happens only a few times in the Torah, something like that, that like an upside-down nun or something like that, that we'd be able to know where the next break is. Well, look at that. In Perak Vav, we have Paska Be'emsa Pasuk. Right? This is a, a phenomenon that happens three times in the Torah. Earlier scholars found six, but there, we have three. Um, which is basically, in, in the middle of a Pasuk, in the Sefer Torah, suddenly we'll get a stop, and we'll leave the entire line blank. And then we'll continue the Pasuk in the next line. So in Perak Vav Pasuk Aleph, we read, Vahi Acharei Magifa. So, is the middle of a pasuk, right? The last pasuk ended Dvar Peor, and the next pasuk ends with Lemor on the next line. So, why is there a break in the middle? Well, one of the ways we can try to understand it is this is a sign that this is where we're supposed to break our structural analysis for the second part of our timeline. So, we have three pieces in our structural analysis Aleph to Yud Aleph, Yud Aleph to Chav Vav and Chavvav to Lamedvav. Well, now we're going to try to fill our structural analysis with meaning. Okay, what is it that we're going to be able to learn by finding out that these are indeed the, the structure to Sefer and Midbar? And for that, we're going, to learn, we're going to turn to the power of speech, Dalid Bet Resh. And we're doing that in part because we can see from the Radak that indeed Midbar, the word itself, is Mekom Hadibur, the place of speaking. Just like Mizbeach is the place of Zevach, and Mishkan is the place of Shechina, the Midbar is the place of Dibur. So we're going to focus our attention now to the word Dibur, to the whole idea of speech, the idea of God's speech and people's speech, what, how, how those are contrasted. We're going to see if we obey God's speech. So we'll look at phrases like Ka'asher Tziva, Ka'asher Diber, Al-Pi Hashem, literally by God's mouth. We're going to see the idea of obeying God's command. And Rashi gives us one more aspect to the idea of Dalet Betresh, and that's in Sefer Dvarim. Yehoshua is a little bit apprehensive about taking the reins of leadership, and Moshe tells him, oh, don't worry, if you ever get stuck, you can always ask those Zekenim. They'll have what to tell you. And God says, no. God says, that's not really the way it's going to work. If you look towards the end, it's all up to you, Yehoshua. Don't look to the Zekenim. Tol makel v'hach al Take your staff and hit them on the heads. Dabar echad lador. There is only one spokesperson, a dabar, one leader, one spokesperson, the person who has the right to speak on behalf of the people. Velo shnei dabarim lador. 
and there are no two spokespeople for the generation. And so we see the idea of Dalet Betresh, again, associated also with authority and leadership. It's the person who has the ability to have other people listen to what they say, and that's what we're going to be paying attention to as we look at things throughout the book. So we're going to take a look now at these two big phrases, Alpi Hashem and Ka'asher Tziva, and we're going to map them out. How many times do they appear in the three different sections that we've identified in Sefer B'Midbar? So let's start with Aleph through Yud and see how many times we run into this, into this phrase. Well, in Perak Aleph, we start off that the census is according to the way God said. Then we move on to say the Levim were not counted the way God said. Then we move on to say that the Jewish people encamped the way that God said. Then we move on to see that, God, uh, that Moshe actually counted the people, Alpi Hashem. The Levim uh, were then counted separately as God commanded. Uh, we again have the idea of the uh, Levites um, giving over the monies that they need for the firstborns that didn't have someone to redeem them. Alpi Hashem, Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. And then we count each of the Levites, Alpi Hashem. First the Kehati are Alpi Hashem. Then the Gershon are Alpi Hashem. And then the Merari are Alpi Hashem. As we continue, we have again in Perik Dalid the idea of counting Alpi Hashem. And this is the placement of the Levi'im in their posts. Ka'ashe Asher Siva Hashem et Moshe. <coughs> we have the sending out of the impure people. Ka'asher Diver Hashem. As we see, we have a tremendous amount. We're being inundated with uh, opportunities to see Ka'asher Siva Hashem. The, the lighting of the menorah, the building of the menorah in Perikhet, the, uh, the, the doing to Levim, the purification of the Levim in Perikhet, twice Ka'asher Siva Hashem. Moving on into Perikhet, the bringing of the Korban Pesach is Kol Hashem Siva Hashem. Alpi Hashem Yisu, Alpi Hashem Yachanu in Perektet, that appears six times. We have it repeated again and again and again in, in Perektet. And finally in Perek Yud, Vayisu Varishona, Alpi Adonai, Beyad Moshe, they travel according to the word of God. And so, 23 times we have the appearance of Alpi Hashem in Ka'asher Tziva. And so, I won't uh, make us go through all of them throughout the entire book, but just the survey said, here we have it, Ka'asher Tziva and Palpi Hashem appears in the first 10 Perakim 23 times, and then we see that there's a tremendous drop from Perak Yud Aleph to Kaf Hay, even though there there's 15 Perakim, and we only looked at 10 in the first bar. And the last 10 Perakim, again we see a resurgence of Alpi Hashem and Ka'asher Tziva, which we'll get to a little bit later. Now if you think that Alpi Hashem and Ka'asher Tziva is like some generic phrase that appears everywhere, and therefore it's not really significant, well let's take a look here at how it spread out throughout the Torah. In Sefer, Bereshit, and Dvarim, it hardly appears. In that case, it's more than uh, ten times the appearances in Sefer Ben-Midvar. Um, and even in Sefer Shemot, where it appears twenty-something times, we still have about double that in Sefer Ben-Midvar. So this phrase, this theme of listening to God and obeying God's command is something that is uniquely Sefer Ben-Midvar material. Now let's take a look again and try to understand why we have this sudden plummeting of appearances of Alpi Hashem in Ka'asher Tziva in Prakim Yud Aleph to Kaf He. Well, if we take a look at what goes on there, we see that there's a lot of bad-mouthing going around. In Perik Yud Aleph, we have the Kivrot Ta'ava, where the Jewish people are asking to eat meat, right? That's something you do with your mouth. The punishment takes place, Habasar Odenu Ben Shinnehem, while the meat is still between their teeth. And there God tells Moshe, Hayikrecha Devari Imlo. Now you'll see whether my word comes true or not. In Perak Yud Bet, Miriam speaks Lashon Hara. The wording there also makes use of Dalet Betresh. Harak Ach Moshe Diber Hashem Alogambanu Diber. And in God's response, He says Pe El Pe Adaber Bo. Right? And Madu Alo Yeretem Le Daber Beavdi Moshe. Again, the Dalet Betresh coming again and again. In Perak Yud Gimel and Yud Dalet, in regards to the Meraglim, the Meraglim themselves Vayashivu Otam Davar. Again, Dalit Betresh, giving back the report to the Jewish people, their motzi diba, they complain to Moshe and Aharon. Even the punishment that God wants to give the Jewish people is dever, Dalit Betresh. And when God tells them and swears that they're going to stay in the desert for 40 years, Ka'asher dibartem be'oznai ke'ne'eselachem. As you spoke, that's how I will do. And God's swearing is, Ani Hashem dibarti. I am God, I have spoken. When we get to the Ma'apilim, Moshe tells them, please, don't go up. 
Why are you violating, transgressing the mouth of God? It won't be successful. When someone has to bring a Qurban Khatat, it's described as being because Ki Devar Hashem Baza, because he has despised the word of God. And of course, no more, no less, that what needs to be the punishment for Korach and his rebellion, that the earth opens up its mouth to swallow them up. And so we have the idea of the people needing to learn the message and the lesson of speech, but who's going to do it? Well, we saw there were only a few times during those middle prakim that we had ka'asher tziva. Here are two of them. We have two candidates to teach the Jewish people obedience to God. They are Aharon and Moshe. Aharon is being recorded as listening to Moshe by bringing the incense to stop the plague, and Moshe is being recorded as ka'asher tziva Hashem when God commanded him to take the staff of Aharon and place it before the Aaron. So God is now going to give them an opportunity to teach the lesson of speech to the Jewish people. Let's see what happens. This is none less than Sefer Bemidbar Perikhaf Memeriva. Take your staff and gather the people, you and your brother Aharon, and speak to the rock in front of them, and it will give forth its waters. And you'll take out waters from the rock. You'll give water to the people and to their animals. Well, let's see what happens. So far, so good. Complete compliance. Moshe does exactly as he's told. He takes the mate from before God. Looks like we're going to have a winning combination here. Pasuk Yud. They gather the people by the rock. And he tells them, Listen up, you rebellious people. Are we able going to be able to take out water from this rock? Now here already we have a little bit of a problem. Right? This is not a proper use of speech, to speak to the people as being rebellious. There's no mention here of an you know, introduction of what it is that's going to happen. Right? The introduction could have, should have been, oh, you know, we're really going to talk to this rock and it's just going to give us water so that you can understand just how powerful speech is and you need to watch what it is that you say and not complain. But we don't have that here. Let's see what happens. Pasuk Yud Moshe lifts up his hand. He smites the rock twice with his staff. And a lot of water gushes out. And he gives to drink both to the people and to the animals. As a result of this, God tells Moshe and Aaron the following. Because you didn't trust me enough to sanctify me to the eyes of the Jewish people. Therefore, you will not bring this congregation to the land I'm giving them. These are the waters of strife that the Jewish people fought with God. And he was sanctified through them. Now this is a very difficult piece in general. We're not going to go through every nuance of it. But we do need to point out two major difficulties that will cause us some distress. And one of them is, we know we deal a lot with why is this the fit punishment, the befitting punishment for hitting the rock. Uh, but even more so is, what did Aharon do? You know, like Aharon is there for the ride, more or less. And uh, suddenly, Aaron is uh, condemned not to go into the land of Israel. And he's stuck now for 40 years, uh, after, after working for 40 years, not being able to go to the land of Israel. Well, I would like to suggest if we take a little bit of a closer look, we'll understand exactly what Aaron's role was. Well, let's first see where Aaron is mentioned. By Akilo Mosheb and Aaron et They were in charge of gathering all the people. However, what's next? Vayom Elahem. Who said that sentence of the rebellious people? We normally understand that Moshe said that sentence. However, let's take a look and see what was Aharon's job. Aharon's job is to be Speaker of the House. In Sefer Shemot, when he's being assigned his task for the first time, it says, He is the one who's going to speak to the people. There it is again, more mouth speaking. Right? Aharon is the one who's going to speak to the people, and therefore, when it says, We know it's Aharon who's saying those words, and we know that as well, because if you look at the next pasuk, it says, Vayarem Moshe et yado. And if it was already Moshe speaking beforehand, you didn't need Vayarem Moshe, you just could have said, Vayarem et yado. Why are we mentioning Moshe? Because now we know that beforehand, it was Aharon who was saying the words, The second question we have is, we seem to have a contradiction. In the beginning of the pasuk, it says, which implies that God's name was not sanctified in this event. 
And only at the end, then, we get the words, Vayikadesh Bam, and God was sanctified through them. Well, which one was it? Was God sanctified? Or wasn't he sanctified? Well, Rashi says, he was sanctified through them, them not being the waters of Memorivah, but through Moshe and Aharon dying on account of them. Well, we're going to have to get back a little bit later to the idea of how it is exactly that Moshe and Aaron's dying rectifies the idea of God not getting his Kiddush Hashem in this episode. And while we're talking about Kiddush Hashem, we kind of think of Kiddush Hashem and Hilul Hashem, and it usually is somewhere associated with non-Jews. It seems to be something that's profaning God's name in the eyes of the world. And where is this Hilul Hashem taking place? Well, we looked for people who could teach the Jewish people the lesson of speech, the Jewish people themselves failed. We looked to Moshe and Aharon, and they failed. Well, who's left? Who's going to be able to teach the Jewish people the lesson of speech? Well, unfortunately, the fellow who does it is Bilam. Bilam, no less than four times, repeats again and again that I must listen to God. I can only say what God says. I cannot violate God's word. Let's take a look inside. Hadavar adaber Again, Dalit Bet Resh, all over the place. Hello at Asheyasim Adonai Befi, Oto Eshmo Ledaber, whatever God gives me, that's what I will say. Hello di Barti Elecha Lemo, Kolashe Yedaber Adonai Oto Ese, whatever God says, that's what I can do, I can't do anything else, even if I want to. Lo Uchal, La Avoret Pi Hashem. Bilam says, I can't possibly violate God's command, as opposed to what we saw by the Mapilim, Lama Zeatem Ovrim et Pi Hashem. Here, Bilam says, I can't possibly transgress God's words. Whatever God says, that's what we're going to, that's what I'm going to have to do. And so, but we shouldn't think Bilam is such a sadiq, right? He's not a, someone who loves the Jewish people. He's looking to teach us uh, wonderful lessons that we need to learn. We learned in Sefer Devarim that really Bilam is out to curse the Jewish people, to destroy the Jewish people. It's only because God loves us that he transformed his curses into a blessing. But again, the idea of speech is pervasive in the entire parasha of Balak that deals with Bil'am. And if we take a look at all the speech words, the idea of Higadati, Vayan, Deber, Davar, Pi, Amar, Imre, Neum, Kabo, all of these words that have to do with speech, they are predominant in the, in the parasha of Bil'am. And they're all together 108 times where this occurs. And if this is not impressive because you don't know how to gauge this against the rest of the Torah, here you go. Okay, In the parasha of Balak, there's about almost 1.2 words of speech per pasuk, which is more than triple what appears in general in Sefer Bemidbar in general or in the entirety of the Torah. And so indeed the idea of having that many speech words in the parasha of Bil'am is really pointing us to understand that this is a key factor of what's going on in our analysis. And this is our structural analysis is now being filled more and more with content. So when you took a look at this uh, bar graph that we had earlier, we saw the drop in Alpi Hashem in Prakim Yudal of Takafhei, and now we're going to get an upswing right after we learn the lesson of speech from Bil'am and the idea that we need to be obedient. We now have an ability to go back to being obedient to God, and sure enough, let's go and see. Look at the charts. Where does it appear in Perachavav already? The new census that the Jewish people undertake are Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. The laws of inheritance are Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. Moshe giving Yehoshua his job is Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. Giving him smicha is Ka'asher Diber Hashem. Warring on Midian, Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. Right? The taking of taxes after Midian. Well, that one's a little bit difficult. People don't like paying taxes. But here we have to have like four times to tell us to do it. Ka'asher Tziva Hashem. We have in Perak Lamed Aleph, all three of them here, Ka'asher Tziva Hashem, Ka'asher Tziva Hashem et Moshe. And in Perak Lamed Gimel, Moshe records the travels of the Jewish people, Alpi Hashem, and we have Aharon dying, Alpi Hashem. We have the idea of the Bnei Yosef argument being uh, responded to, Alpi Hashem. And finally, the Benot Tzlofchad do Ka'asher Siva Hashem when they marry within the tribe. Whew. So now we have all of these episodes where we see that there's a restoration of obedience and phrases of Alpi Hashem and Ka'asher Tziva in regards to the third section of our structural analysis. So now we're going to try to understand where it is that this is all taking us. Right? We have this some of it a correspondence between the first section and the third section. Right? So we have obedience to God and obedience to God. Wouldn't it be great 
that if in addition to the phrases of Ka'asher Tziva Hashem and the idea of Alpi Hashem, we also found some parallels in content and linguistics to tie together the first and the third sections of this book. Well, that's exactly what we get. We basically get Sefer Ben Midbar, take two, the matrix is reloaded when we begin in Perakavav. Let's take a look. These are the topics that are in the last ten prakim. We have a general census. We have a Levite special status, Perakavav. We have special holiday usage of the altar in Perakavchet. We have the idea of the Are Leviim keeping the land of Israel pure in Periklamid Hay. We have petitions being made to Moshe and Aharon and the leadership by Benot Tzlovchad and Bnei Yosef in Bemidbar Chavzayin and Lamed Vav. And we have the listing of the journeys of the Jewish people in Perik Lamed Gimel. Now if we line them up with what we had for the first ten prakim, we see that there's pretty much a strong correlation between the contents of what goes on in the, second, in the last ten prakim with the first ten prakim of Sefer Bemidbar. Let's take a look at the linguistic parallels between them. Right? If we take a look at the general census, Perik Chavav is lifted word for word from Perik Aleph. Not, there's not a single word that was its own. All of it is taken from Perik Aleph. If we look at the, what happened in regards to the Levites, we have Lohot Pakdu Betoch in both sections, and that idea of they're not being included in the census is because they are special. Right? They are the people who are going to be working in the Mishkan. They're not going to have a, land, a portion in the land of Israel. That's why they're not counted amongst the rest of the people. And that idea is both Perak Aleph and Perak Chavav. We see special holiday use of the Mishkan. And this is one of my favorites. You see here in Parashat Naso, when it comes to the Korban and Nesi'im, that whoever has this for their Bar Mitzvah, it's a great one. You get to repeat everything over and over. So here, Bayom HaShani, Bayom HaShilishi Nasi, Bayom HaRvi'i Nasi, Bayom HaChamishi Nasi, Bayom HaShishi Nasi. And where else do we have something like that? In the Musafim, in the Musafim for Sukkot, Ubayom Hashani, Ubayom Hashirishi, Ubayom Harvi, Ubayom Hamishi, Ubayom Hashi, Ubayom Hashi, Ubayom Hashmini, all of these repeat themselves in sequential order to tell us that there's something to compare between these two episodes. We have the idea of the Levites purifying themselves and getting kapara for themselves, and their cities are the ones in Periklamid Hay that allowed the Bnei Yisrael to have kapara for manslaughter, and that's the way to keep the land pure and not to impurify it by having murderers roam free. So this idea of purification through the Levites or by the Levites in Perik Chet and Perik Lamed Hay. And we have the idea of the petitions. In Perik Tet, people want a petition to be able to bring the Korban Pesach despite their being impure. The language that they use when they approach Moshe is Lama Nigara. Why should we be left out? From amidst the Jewish people. And when we look at the, the petition that the Benot Tzlovchad have, it's Lama Yigara. Shem Avinu. Why should our name of our father be left out? We also want an achuzah betoch, amidst uh, our father's brothers. When the Bnei Yosef come later in Periklamid Vav, they too are petitioning using the language of So we see that the petitions themselves are also well aligned. When we get to the travels of the Jewish people, in Perik Tet, we had the famous Alpi Hashem Yachanu, Alpi Hashem Yisau, and in Perik Lamed Gimel, the same phrase. Moshe writing the travels of the Jewish people, Alpi Hashem, Vayisu Vayachanu, Vayisu Vayachanu, throughout the entire parasha, all Alpi Hashem. And so we've seen that we now have parallels in content and linguistics as well between the first and the third parts of our structural analysis. And we're going to try to understand now what it is that this represents, where uh, the Jewish people are supposed to go with this lesson of speech. Well, one of the first reasons why it's so important to learn uh, the, uh, the importance of obeying God's speech and what it represents is that the Jewish people are about to go conquer the land of Canaan. And they have to listen blindly to their army orders. Alpiv yatsu, when the Jewish people need to listen to Yehoshua, the Pasuk tells us, Alpiv yatsu, Alpiv yavo'u, again, the idea of the mouth, the idea that they're going to listen to their commander, they need to follow orders. You need to learn to be obedient. Okay, and if you're not going to be obedient, we already see in Sefer Yehoshua there are deadly consequences. Achan, one man, who took from the booty of Yericho when it was forbidden, led to people dying in the next battle. It was only after Achan was eradicated that the Jewish people were able to uh, successfully conquer their next goal. But I think it's important for us to point out that it's not simply that we have a binary code, that we listened to God in the beginning, then we didn't, and now we did. Rather, it's important to pay attention to what the speech is, what is the obedience of the Jewish people in section 3. It really is addressing the problems that arise 
in the middle section of Sefer Ben-Midvar. So in the beginning, in the middle section, Perak Yud Aleph, the Jewish people wanted to eat meat in Kivrot HaTa'va. God says, I'm going to give you Nedarim. It's a, it's a vehicle for you to restrict food intake. You're allowed to prohibit yourself from eating the meat. And when God gives over the commands of Nedarim, the Dalet Betresh appears again. Lo yachel devaro, the idea of keeping your word. Kechol It's important what you say, and mean what you say, and say what you mean. Kechol You have to do what you say, and this is a rectification for the idea of the eating of the meat. We have the episode of the spies where the Jewish people despise the land of Israel. Well, in section 3, we have people fighting in order to keep part of the land of Israel. Both Benot Tzalofchad and Bnei Yosef are fighting over getting their plot. The Benot Tzalofchad are Doverot, again, Dalet Betresh, and the Bnei Yosef are Doverim. We have, again, the male and feminine form of Dalet Betresh being used. We had the Ma'apilim who were violating God's word, that SWAT team that wanted to be the first ones up. They wanted to fight no matter what. And now we get the two and a half tribes. They are also going to now become our SWAT team, leading the Jewish people in their conquerings of the land of Israel. And there the Pasuk says, We will do as you say. We are going to be before God. We're not going to be transgressors of God's command. It's not going to be la'avor al pi Hashem like the ma'apilim. We are going to do again Dalit Betresh as God said. And Moshe tells them, This mantra repeating itself also by the Nedarim and also here. Do what you say. You must keep your word. What you say counts. We have even the inanimate objects, right? Piha'aretz that was swallowing up Korach and his Eida in the beginning through the Piha Aton of Bil'am finally gets to the Piha Goral. There's a resolution even of inanimate objects using their mouth, so to speak, to now give over the land to the Jewish people. And now we return back to the idea of Moshe and Aharon failing to make a Kiddush Hashem by Memeriva and dying for Kiddush Hashem. Well, what does it mean they died on Kiddush Hashem, right? Rashi told us that when they die, that's going to be the Kiddush Hashem for God. Well, no one's like burning them at the stake, telling them, you know, give up your belief in God or you're going to die. So where is the Kiddush Hashem? Well, if we take a look, we normally think about dying as something that happens to someone. It's not something you can do, right? It's not normally what we associate with dying. But Aharon and Moshe are going to have a different experience. They're going to be commanded to die, right? Ye'asef Aharon alamah. Okay? Aharon is going to die. He will die there. And so when Aharon goes up to Hor Hahar, he knows he's going to die. He's willingly going up. Why is he doing that? Because he's obeying God's command. Right? We read this in Perak Lamed Gimel. Only in Perak Lamed Gimel we have this bifurcation of Aharon's death in two places, Chaf and Lamed Gimel. Now in Perak Lamed Gimel it says, He is obeying God's command. The ultimate obedience to God, giving your life in obedience to God. The only reason he's going up is because it's Alpi Hashem and it has to be there, obviously. Why? Because in the middle section, we don't get Alpi Hashem, only after the lesson of Bil'am. And that's why Aharon's death is bifurcated. So Aharon dies and it's not only a tikkun for not obeying God, but it's also the aspect of not doing the Kiddush Hashem Le'enehem. Right? The idea was you were supposed to speak to the rock Le'enehem in front of all the people and sure enough when Aharon goes up it's le'ene kol ha'eda. So we have Aharon rectifying his uh, misobedience, his violation of God's command by giving his life in obedience to God. Similarly by Moshe. Moshe is commanded to die. Umut bahar shama Just like your brother went up to a mountain and died, so too you go up to a mountain and you too are going to die. And when we finally get to the end of Sefer Dvarim, and we read about Moshe dying. How does Moshe die? Right? Moshe's death is al pi Hashem, just like Aharon's death is al pi Hashem, which is exactly the rectification for obeying God's word and giving up your life, giving up his life, which is the ultimate in obedience. And even Moshe as well, his miracles that are going to be remembered are the ones that were done le'ene kol Yisrael. That's his rectification for the aspect of le'enehem. So we see that the 
Final section of Sefer ben Midbar gave us rectification. We had the meat versus the nadarim, the spies versus Benot Salafchad and Ben Yosef. <coughs> Excuse me, the Ma'pilim versus the two and a half tribes, the inanimate objects, and finally the Memeriva being the death of Aharon and Moshe. But I think that the Pasuk, where God tells Moshe and Aharon, Yan Lohem and Tembi, really relays a deeper point about what it is that obedience is relate, relaying to the Jewish people, what it represents. And that's the idea of trust. God says, you didn't trust me enough to sanctify my name. What basically is being taught here is that when someone wants to disobey God, what's implied is that you don't trust that God's word was like the best thing for you. And if you can't trust in God, you're really damaging the relationship that you have with God. And in order to build the trust, in order to get back God's trust, and to be, for you to show your trust in God, it needs to be through obeying God's commands. And so the idea of trust lays at the bedrock of what it is that the idea of obedience is meant to teach the Jewish people. Now, if we take everything that we had until now, and we want to try to tie it back somehow with some part of the uh, beginning of the lecture, part one, that we dealt with the chronology, we saw that the general census and the Pesach were out of order chronologically. But now when we think about the idea of obedience and how the general census and the Pesach work in regards to obedience, we might understand why we start off the book with the census. Because the census basically represents the idea of total obedience. It's the dissolution of the self. You turn yourself into a number. You are totally obedient. That's the way we want to start the book. However, in the Pesach, when we dealt with the people who came asking for Pesach Shani, they were out to buck the system. They, they thought that the system is here to serve my needs. And therefore, you need to change the system. Let us bring the Korban now while we're impure. The idea of switching them allows us to recognize that before we can ask the system to serve my needs, we need to submit to the system and be ready to obey God. And then with that foundation, only then you can work within the system to make changes. So by switching the chronological order, the message is, ask not what your God can do to serve you, but ask what you can do to serve your God. Now, and we summarize, it's important for us to pay attention and we see that we look throughout the chronology of Sefer Midbar, and we understand that we had a correspondence uh, between these chapters. First, we started with the general census. That was the textual order, which ended up being chronologically last. We saw other episodes that were out of place in Sefer ben Midbar. And we finally tried to understand what was the message of it being out of chronological order. And that was in regards to the retarded progress of the Jewish people. As they try to make progress through the desert, their past haunts them, and they're unable to complete their direct path to Eretz Israel. And instead, they have this squiggly line where they're encountering failure and setbacks and need to overcome them. In fact, if we look in Parashat uh, Maseh, when we read about all of the travels of the Jewish people, we indeed find, if you map them out physically on the map, the Jewish people are going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. So this idea is reflected not only in the physical space, but also in regards to the progress of the narrative. And that's why Sefer ben Midbar is out of order, to t teach us, to feel, to experience that the Jewish people are having this retarded progress towards the Promised Land. We looked at the idea of creating timelines by association. The Jewish people did not have memory markers. They indeed suffered a lot of trauma, which damages their memory. And that was why we ended up with this disheveled vase picture of Sefer ben Midbar. As the Jewish people every year, we reread what that experience was. And we're unable to get a firm grip on what it is that happened when, because everything is a blur. Everything was traumatically uh, affected. We then moved on to part two of our shiur, where we were able to take a look and understand that the theme of Sefer ben Midbar is the idea of Dibur, Dalit Betresh, where the Radak told us that that indeed is the name of Midbar, that it has to do with Dibur. We then took a look and were able to chart out, thanks to our friends at Dikta, uh, to find all the places where things appear, of Alpi Hashem and Ka'asher Tziva. We broke it down into the three sections, thanks to our Masoretic markers. We had the upside-down nuns to mark off the first, 11, first 10 prakim, and then we had the paska, be'emsa pasuk, in order to give us the beginning of the third section in Perech When we finally got all of this together, we saw that there was content to our structure. 
that Dibur filled our structure with meaning. We were able to understand that moving throughout the chapters, through the different sections, we were able to see the drop in the obedience to God and then the resurgence after the episode of Bil'am. We then saw parallels in content between the first 10 chapters and the last 10 chapters of Sefer and Midbar. We also saw that there were linguistic parallels for each one of those six major topics that we saw, both in vast numbers of comparisons like we have here in Perich or even one or two like we saw in regards to the Levites. And we understood why it was important to be obedient to God. It was important to be obedient to God because it's a prelude to their uh, advance, military advance into the land of Canaan. We saw in great detail that the Tikkunim that they were doing in the third part of Sefer Midbar was the way for them to rectify their, their misdoings in the middle part of Sefer Midbar. It's not just, it looks like a repeat of the beginning of the first ten prakim, but it's not just a repeat, it's moving them up that spiral to the next level for them to be able to be ready to go into the land of Israel by addressing each one of their concerns in, individually. We saw that the idea of the general census being placed first was in order to ingrain in the Jewish people's minds that the idea of being obedient needs to be paramount in our uh, allegiance to God, and only afterwards can we ask God and the system to be attentive to our personal needs. And so when we take a look at the ten prakim that we started with, it lead, led us to the idea of the misuse of speech, to the idea of bad-mouthing. And there was the idea of crying, of complaining, of saying lashonara of ovrimet piyashem, of transgressing God's words, of the rebellion of Korach. But when we finally get to the last ten prakim, that's where we're able to tell that we now are able to begin the next book of Sefer Ele Hadvarim. Thank you very much.